Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Women's History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jane Semeca, Professor of History at Brookdale Community College. Today, we'll be discussing a new book by Dr. Jacqueline Beattie, entitled Independence, Women and the Patriarchal State in Revolutionary America, published by New York University Press. Dr. Beattie is Assistant Professor of History at York College of Pennsylvania. She holds a PhD from George Mason University. Her work has appeared in the South Carolina Historical Magazine and the edited volume, Women Waging War in the American Revolution. She was a finalist for the 2017 Shear Manuscript Prize, which recognizes the first book by a new author on the history of the early American Republic. Welcome to the show, Jacqueline. Thanks for having me. There are so many good books on women in the American Revolution. So Mm -hmm. what was your goal in writing this book? What did you want to add to the scholarship? Yeah, I think um, what a lot of historians of of women in the revolutionary era uh, are always trying to investigate is whether and to what degree the revolution made any changes in women's lives. I think to so many people, the revolution feels like or seemed like a moment of opportunity, Um, this language of rights, throwing off the monarchy, establishing a republic and a democracy. Um, And it's it's very confusing and frustrating for folks who aren't really enmeshed in studying the period as to why, you know, you didn't, they didn't end slavery, for example, or why women weren't given the right to vote. Um, So a lot of scholars who study women in the period are really trying to investigate why that is, what the kind of social, cultural, economic, legal situation was that kind of inhibited progress and to what degree, if any, women were able to make progress. So that's that was kind of the starting point for me when I was in graduate school, first um, kind of doing research for this project. So what sources did you examine? So, yeah, uh, uh, my primary source base were uh, petitions submitted and written by women, um, mostly um, to their state legislatures and to county courts. And I focused specifically on um, women's lives in in Boston, Philadelphia, and Charleston um, between 1750 and 1820 to kind of really zoom into the broader revolutionary era to see whether there was a kind of change or stagnation um, over time and whether the revolution made any significant changes. Um, So these these petitions are very different from what we think of 
in in modern terms. Um, you know, I think a lot of people when they think of petitions, they think of those kind of online GoFundMe type things that that you can kind of type your name in to sign. Um, but I think the the closest equivalent to what we have today is kind of like calling your senator to urge them to vote for a piece of legislation, or if you need help or assistance with something from your local representative, right? You call or you fax or you text their office. That's that's basically what was happening here, where. Um, initially kind of subjects of the crown would submit petitions. But then, of course, after uh, the United States declares independence, um, there are people that are looking to their local legislatures more and more for various forms of assistance, both um, on an individual level, which is mostly what I looked at, but also um, collectively people petition together for various things. So <clears throat> what did these uh, petitions show you in terms of understanding women during the American Revolutionary Era? Yeah, um, it was, it's sometimes difficult, I think, um, if, if you're just looking at a couple of these petitions, because they can seem very rote, very repetitive. Um, and they are in some cases, certainly the format that they take where, you know, um, there's a lot of supplicating language and kind of performance of humility, whether men or women are submitting these petitions. Um, but what stuck out at me was specifically the gendered language and this kind of unique performance of femininity that women were repeating over and over in their petitions, um, that they are kind of parroting in some ways um, the social cultural expectations of what a woman ought to be. Um, and what's difficult is that we can't really know whether they bought in to these expectations. Um, all we know is what they told the legislature, um, which is why I think it's better to think of these sources as a as a performance or as a rhetorical strategy. Um, perhaps whether they bought into it or not, it's at least immaterial to what I was studying. But the fact that they recognized that living up to the state's expectations of white femininity was an effective strategy to get what they wanted from the state. And that really ran the gamut, what they were asking for. Um, but a lot of the petitions I looked at in this period, um, women are looking for financial relief, return of their property, sometimes return of their husbands who had been banished. Um, a lot of things that happened to them as a result of the war or as a result of kind of failed patriarchs at the state level or in their households for their husbands primarily. So the, the loyalists spouses inspired some of the petition during the American Revolution. So, yeah. you know, I think that we often kind of maybe imbalance, we have kind of a, an imbalance in the way we stress more the people who were in favor of independence versus the people who were loyalists. But I thought yeah. that some of the loyalist stuff that you talk about is, it was really particularly interesting. Can you comment on that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's interesting too, because at least from society's expectations of white femininity, women were not supposed to be especially political, um, which is not, I mean, that's not the reality. Everything is kind of politicized then as it is now. Um, but women, knew this, they knew that they weren't supposed to be political and they were able to use that to their advantage. Um, so in the places that I looked at, Boston, Philadelphia, and Charleston, all three of these cities were 
you know, differently occupied by the British or the revolutionary governments at different times. So when one force would be forced to leave the city and another would come in, there's a lot of upheaval for folks who were really kind of firmly on one side or another, whether they consider themselves patriots or loyalists. Um, so I saw a lot of women who, and I'm going to, I know this is an audio medium, but I'm going to use scare quotes and say that they were loyalists because some of them were, some of their husbands were, and some of them were kind of wishy-washy. I think um, these categories aren't as, as firm as many people think that everyone kind of has a side. A lot of people were either neutral or in the middle or went back and forth, depending on the political situation where they were living. Um, but there were a fair number of men um, especially in in places like Charleston that were um, kind of occupied in this really um, significant way where um, men were kind of compelled to sign loyalty oaths to the crown um, when the British occupied the city. And after the revolutionary government of South Carolina was able to come back in and, and push the British out, um, they punished men who signed these loyalty oaths. And they punished them by confiscating their property and by expelling them from the state. And these men often had to go either somewhere else in, in the colonies where the British were kind of firmly in control or other places in the British Empire, namely Canada or, or back in England. Um, their wives and children are often left um, in some cases. And it's the women frequently who are writing petitions to the revolutionary governments that take over asking for repatriation of their husbands and a return of their property. Although sometimes it's just the latter and not the former, which I also think is, is pretty interesting that they're more interested in the property and the financial security than their husbands. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of that is, is based on the need to survive. Um, women's financial situation, especially married women's was very precarious in this period. If they didn't have, not only if they didn't have a husband, if they didn't have a husband who was especially financially adept, a hard worker who was earning money. Um, so they are able to essentially emphasize the fact that women were expected to be dependent on their husbands to win back property from the state saying, you know, I, I can't survive without him, without his income, without his property. My children and I are without a home. We're going to starve. Some of them go so far as to suggest that they and their daughters will basically turn to sex work, right? They use euphemisms, but euphemisms that the legislators would have certainly been able to understand, right? So they kind of play, these women play on the sympathies of the state to kind of tug at their heartstrings and, you know, argue that when their husbands aren't there to quote unquote protect them, then the state needs to step in, right? So a lot of this, as I said, women's petitions are as a result of the various upheavals and crises brought about as a result of the war. It's a really great leveraged argument that they make because if they lose the petition, the government is going to end up with these same people back in front of yes. them. Mm -hmm making the argument that now we're on the dole. Yep. And, yeah. And now absolutely. you've got to, you know, so, you know, I think that by playing to the morality issue of, you know, the potential of turning to sex work mm -hmm. or the idea of becoming a part of the, the almshouse, the mm -hmm. poor house is, 
those are really great arguments to yeah. make yeah. if you're trying to persuade the patriarchal system mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to bend to your to bend to your side. I think it was uh, really uh, very clever. Yeah, and I think the state it gives them an out as well, right? I think one of the things I learned from this book is that you know women are mostly petitioning to remedy their individual situations but if you look at all of these sources together you can see the huge systemic problems that the state had no interest in fixing because the state wanted to maintain the status quo of their patriarchal power so if women can kind of give them an out in this situation right return my husband return his property then they know that as you know to your point these women wouldn't be forced to become dependent on the public dole or turn to almshouses and workhouses where the state would have to supply them with relief anyway. You know, it's not to say women didn't end up in that situation. Of course they did, but at least the wealthier, more well-connected women are able to use these petitions very effectively because they, you know, the, the state doesn't want to actually make significant changes to get rid of these problems. They just want to, I, I keep using the metaphor of like putting a bandaid on a gaping wound, right? Um, trying to to plug a leak in a dam when it's, you know, you can see the, the cracks in the foundation everywhere, right? Um, a solution that's not going to fix the problem, but it's going to fix this one instance of the consequences of the problem. And it's continuity with the English common law too. Yeah. I mean, the common law really had to have been important in your in your preparation, right? Mm -hmm. Because the English common law that's prioritized as well, to, you know, to keep the patriarchal family. So then the government doesn't have to have the responsibility. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to keep women dependent and, um, kind of ultimately reflective of this larger patriarchal system in the state. Yeah. Mm. So did women write these petitions themselves or did they use lawyers? Um, some of them did both. Some of them were kind of presented orally and recorded by a clerk, thankfully for me, where I, a lot of the sources I looked at were handwritten by professional clerks with beautiful penmanship. Um, so it was a mix. Um, and I, I do know at least that women had a role in crafting the language of the petitions. Um, I open the book with a story about a woman um, from Horsham, Pennsylvania, who is relatively well off, but is in a situation where her husband has left. He's gone to England. Um, he, he interestingly wants her to join him. And she says no, uh, but her property that she had inherited was confiscated by Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania's revolutionary government because, you know, under, under the system of coverture, any property that belonged to her prior to her marriage was in her husband's name after they got married. Um, so she is writing and working for years on a series of petitions with friends of hers who are lawyers and, and she knows people in the legislature as well. Um, and that's kind of a double-edged sword for her because um, Joseph Reed, who's the, the president of the legislature at some time has kind of uh, some beef with her because her husband was very certainly a loyalist, right? There's none of this wishy-washy with, with him, but um, she was asked to kind of intervene to try and convince George Washington to, you know, renege on all these various things. So her position is precarious because of her relationship to her husband. Um, but I, I found some letters at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania in her papers where she 
um, it, it's responding to a letter that she wrote and he recognizes like, okay, we saw the corrections you want to make, you wanted to make, and we implemented them in your petition. And the petition itself is kind of full of strikeouts and marginalia. And you can see where, you know, maybe she's like, this is the situation. The lawyers draft up a petition and she's like, no, that's not what I said. I said this and I want you to fix it. Um, so there's, there's a lot of clear evidence that they're actually influencing the language, even if it's not their hand that is drafting it or submitting it to the legislature. That's great. So what kind of petitions, you know, what was sort of just to give listeners an idea of what are sort of the the greatest hits what are the kind of the big types of petitions that you that you saw kind of bubble up most of the time so a lot of the requests that women are putting in their petitions have to do with their husbands and their property and their financial situation. So um, I think one of the reasons why we see a relatively significant increase in the number of petitions during and after the war is because the war itself creates the circumstances where women are in need uh, and the state seems like the only outlet for them in many situations. So Plenty of women are petitioning for, like I said, repatriation of their husbands or return of their property. Um, some of them kind of in the years immediately following the war and for decades after are petitioning for you know their, their rights as widows um, to have pensions for their late husband's service. Some of them actively make a claim that they vicariously also provided patriotic service to the war um, through their you know, situation as wives and and kind of tending to the household. Um, but there's also a kind of uptick in some cases in women petitioning for divorces in this period, which you wouldn't on the surface necessarily think was related to the revolution, but the way that they start arguing for divorces starts to change in the 1770s and beyond. Um, basically, I mean, divorce is an interesting uh, legal matter in this period because it really depended on where you lived, um, what you had access to. Um, and the three places I study, I joke is kind of like the, the Goldilocks and the three bears situation where, you know, you get Boston on one side, Charleston on the other, and Philadelphia is usually somewhere in between both geographically and, uh, socially, culturally, um, in the situation of Boston, pretty much from the get-go, from when the Massachusetts colonies were founded, divorce was legal under certain circumstances because uh, the Puritans viewed marriage as a, a civil contract primarily. And, you know, you break the terms of a civil contract, it's it's over. Um, in Philadelphia, it was permitted under really specific circumstances, but the method by which you got a divorce was really challenging. You had to go through the legislature. It was very costly and time consuming. So it was rare for people to get divorced in, until the late 18th century. Uh, and it was mostly wealthy men who were seeking them. Um, but the revolutionary government changed the laws in 1785 and made them, I'll say, relatively easier uh, to obtain more on par with what was happening in Massachusetts. Um, and then in Charleston, divorce wasn't legal for the entirety of the period I study. It wouldn't be until Reconstruction that uh, the United States government kind of forces South Carolina to put it in their constitution. Um, but then, you know, after Reconstruction ends and the Southern redeemers are trying to reinforce kind of white patriarchal um, white supremacy across the South, they also take out the right to divorce. And I think it's in, not until the mid 20th century, maybe that divorce is legal again in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. 
So it, women really have to navigate these legal systems very differently. Um, it's very contingent upon where they live and what the law allows, but they're also relatively savvy in working with the legal advantages that they have. Um, but what, what I found really interesting about the divorce, well, a lot of things about these uh, sources, but um, women really start to argue that they had a right to divorce beginning in the 1770s, which is a framing that they wouldn't have used prior to that date. And I argue that it's because this language of rights is swirling around them, right? They're reading it, they're hearing it, they're talking about it. Um, and it's it's not necessarily, um, they wouldn't talk about it as, you know, uh, a civil right in the same way that we would think like a right to vote or a right to free speech. Um, but it was a right that was contingent on their position as the dependence of men, right? That they were not adequately protected, covered under the law, that their husbands um, broke this contract and a right, they would use the language that a right accrues to them on the basis of this dependency, which is really interesting, right? Maybe not something modern 21st century women are inherently comfortable with, right? The use of expectations of women's dependence to have an assertion of rights, but it was what women had at the time. So it it worked for a lot of them. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, one of my professors from graduate school, Norma Bash wrote uh, In the mm -hmm. Eyes of the Law. Yes. Her book. books are instrumental in mine. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. She was my teacher. She was great. So men and women had different legal standing, different duties. When men failed to comply with their legal obligations, did this inspire petitions? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, what's really interesting is that, you know, the, the expectations for womanhood, for wives and mothers were very stringent. Um, I go through some of the conduct literature that's in novels, magazines, newspapers, things like that. Um, it definitely doesn't sound fun to be a woman in the 18th century, to say the least. Um, there were fewer kind of stringent expectations for men, but they certainly existed as well, right? In in exchange, essentially, for a woman um, giving up her independent legal identity in marriage, her husband was meant to protect her and care for her and all of his dependents, which also included children and in some circumstances, in, enslaved people, um, this kind of paternalistic outlook. Um, so when men failed in this regard, especially failing to provide financially, um, but also abuse, uh, physical and emotional were um, kind of layered in those petitions for divorce, along with adultery, which was not remaining faithful to wives. Um, so all of these kind of elements of the marriage contract, as many um, would, would frame it in their petitions, uh, men were held to those standards. And what women had to do was basically outline all the ways in which they were living up to the standards in the contract and the kind of social expectations, and then outline all the ways in which their husbands were not. And they really laying it on thick in a lot of ways in terms of like, you know, I was nothing but devoted and obedient. And I really didn't want to have to resort to this, but I see no other choice, you know, um, really speaking in extreme terms while describing the myriad abuses that they faced uh, by their husbands. Yeah, so deferential yet complaining, right? Absolutely. They don't want to Absolutely, just be yeah. complaining, but they also want to kind of be deferential in there. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting too that sorry that the um 
the the petition is inherently a kind of deferential document where petitioners have to supplicate their themselves to authority, but they're simultaneously making demands of the government. So it's also an assertive document, even though the language is kind of dripping with humility. So it's a very paradoxical kind of medium, which is really interesting. So how what's the likelihood that the petitions was were successful? Um, it's it's really hard. I really wanted to like quantify this in a meaningful way, but it's difficult <laughs> based on you know the source material that's left. Um, a lot of times, you know, I would have this petition, and then I'd go to the journals of the House and the committees that were because um, essentially the petition would go to a subcommittee. They would evaluate it and either pass it on or or you know ignore it or reject it. If it gets passed on to the House for a vote, in most cases, um, you know, there's sometimes a record that it passed. Sometimes there's not. Sometimes they would say, oh, you know, table this for tomorrow. And then you go to the records for the next day and there's nothing there. And I, you know, look and look and look and maybe the next day, maybe the next day. And eventually you just have to give up and be like, either this was, it's kind of like a, a pocket veto, right? They ignored it or, you know, they, the clerk didn't keep a record. And it's difficult to follow up with the situation of a lot of these women because many of them were in desperate straits and wouldn't have otherwise left source material for us to find. So it's, it's difficult to, to quantify in many cases. Um, the best opportunity I had to make a judgment on, on the data was in Boston, where just, just literally the way that the records were organized helped me discern whether they were passed or not. Um, because it's like you can, a scorecard. Yeah, basically you, know. you, you can um, go to the acts and resolves that were passed by the legislature. You know, I went through them for 70 years, found ones that were written by women, noted it and found the petition. So I know all of those petitions passed because they're in the acts and resolves. And then the, the state archives up there has a separate collection that is essentially essentially unpassed petitions to the Senate and, and the assembly. And I'm like, perfect. So I know all of these were unpassed. So just literally the way they were organized made it so that I knew for sure whether they were su successful or not. Um, what I can try to deduce about what made them successful is the degree to which women's language complied to the expectations that the law and society kind of set for them. Um, of course, the women that were extra deferential, right, in in both um, kind of emphasizing their dependence on their husbands and the state, um, they kind of are able to craft this sob story uh, really effectively. And I don't want to diminish, you know, what they're saying. It's obviously very difficult, but, you know, they understood that that sympathy was necessary. Those women were usually very successful. Um, there were women who could critique their husbands as long as they were still deferential to the state, or there were women who could critique the state as long as they were still deferential to their husbands. So they had to still kind of perform that dependence on one form of patriarchal authority or another. Um, there are a fair few women who just didn't. <laughs> for whatever reason, we're like, I am not playing this game. I am angry. Um, there's one South Carolina woman in particular who just went off. You know, she was saying, you know, started out normal enough. You know, I'm here with my children and my husband's children from his first marriage. He's gone. I don't know what to do. You know, I'm having a really hard time. 
she critiques him and then she basically blames the state government of South Carolina, not just for her own situation, but I, I forget the exact way that she phrased it, but basically said, you did this to all women. Like what's happening to us is your fault. Uh, and needless to say, that was not a successful petition. Mm. Maybe it was very cathartic for her, but it was not effective, right? So they still had to be attuned to what their audience wanted to hear. Sure. And, you know, I, I kind of mm. was curious when, when women made these petitions, and they're bringing shame on their husbands and yeah. even on their in-laws and, you know, maybe the family mm-hmm. in, at large. Was there any example that you found of women who received any uh, blowback on them or retaliation by the family for being, you know, kind of airing the, the dirty laundry a little mm-hmm. bit in public in the courts? Yeah, I think just because of the the fact that I was exclusively using these legal documents and very few if any women had personal papers left over, that's not something I was able to examine. Um, but to your point, there were um, plenty of instances where women are basically emasculating their husbands in these documents, right? He's a poor provider. He left me. His politics are bad. Any number of things that kind of diminish their patriarchal power. And sometimes that's in service of the family at large, right? There, there are examples of um, these South Carolina women who um will argue that, you know, the only reason my husband signed this loyalty oath to the king was because he was trying to protect his family and his community, right? So like, he's not a strong enough man to stand up for the right political situation implicitly, but oh, but it was for protecting us, right? Um, But there are plenty of other instances where they just, like I said, go off on their husbands and denigrate them. But as long as they're still kind of properly deferential to the state, um, it usually worked out in their favor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's really it's very interesting. So, you take a a really great intersectional and regional view in the book, and you talked about the regional view a little mm-hmm. bit already. So let's go. You know, talk a little bit about the petitions between white women and black women, mm-hmm. and you know, there's the class argument, the middle yeah. class versus the um, the lower class, the you know, the less prominent, less. Uh, affluent people. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about the race and class issues? Yeah. um, I think what's difficult too is all these expectations of femininity that I've been talking about are implicitly white and also implicitly upper class or of of kind of the middling sort at best, people who are well off enough to have strategic racial and class privileges um, that affected the success of their petitions. So I thought it was important to look at how poor women, impoverished women, and Black women are having to navigate this relationship with the patriarchal state. And obviously, it's very, very different based on their circumstances. Um, So I looked at almshouse records in these three cities and admissions and how women were presenting themselves. And poor women are in a really difficult kind of double bind in some ways where um, in some cases, the men who are in charge of these institutions have these expectations of of white femininity that their wives, their daughters, their mothers would have to perform because these are powerful, wealthy men in the community. So they're kind of projecting that on the women in in these almshouses, but simultaneously their poverty um, created a different set of expectations for them. Um, There's kind of changing attitudes from the revolution or through the revolutionary era into the early Republic where more and more people are 
um, kind of blaming essentially the poor for their situation and not able to recognize or not willing to recognize the systemic inequalities that cause poverty in this period. Well, that sounds familiar. Yeah, right. I know. Uh, <laughs> everything old is new again, right? But um, I mean, as far back as like Elizabethan England, there were poor laws where um, the state and the community, often churches, would find themselves responsible for caring for the least among them, the downtrodden, the impoverished, right? And that really starts to change, especially in the early Republic. Um, and, you know, people in these almshouses begin to be referred to as inmates. They are, in some cases, unable to leave. Their children are kind of forcibly apprenticed. Uh, there's a lot of surveillance of their behavior. Um, so women are simultaneously, I should say poor women, are simultaneously made to somehow perform these expectations of dependent femininity, but also they have to work to quote unquote, earn their position in the almshouse, which is more of a kind of masculine expectation. So they can't win either way. And, you know, this cycle of poverty and dependence becomes even worse and even more difficult for them. They're really not able to use their dependence to their advantage, like their uh, more financially secure counterparts are. Um, in terms of Black women, obviously, slavery uh, was very prevalent in this period, especially in South Carolina, but also existed at least for a time in Massachusetts and Pennsylvania um, when I studied, uh, in the period I studied. Um, I think initially when I was doing research and just kind of trying to see every single position submitted by a woman and a woman in these three places, I was hoping to have a more significant number of petitions by black women, at least in Boston and Philadelphia. And I really didn't. Um, mm. I can count on one hand the number that I found. Um, and I did write about them at length. Um, and they are very compelling for a lot of reasons. There's one woman who is in some regard arguing for um, reparations, uh, some would argue. There's a, a, a free black woman who's arguing for a divorce from her enslaved husband in Boston. Um, and there are kind of veiled critiques of slavery throughout all of these. Um, but what I was frustrated with was I, you know, I really wanted to see how black women were navigating this legal patriarchal system. Um, so I decided to look at different kinds of sources where black women would be at least present, if not, you know, hearing their voices outright. Um, so I started looking at um, manumission deeds, manumission records, especially in South Carolina. Um, and I argue that we can look at these sources as being um, at least parallel, if not relatively equivalent to white women's petitions, because what you can see if if you read these sources in a certain way is that they are akin to petitions, right? You can see the activism of many Black women in pushing not just for their own freedom, but for the freedom of their children, of their husbands in some cases, right? Because, um, you know, enslavers, patriarchs are not um, motivated uh, in many ways to free enslaved people. So there had to be some kind of push or reason why they were willing to free enslaved women who were valuable to them, not just based on their physical labor, but their reproductive labor as well, because any child born of an enslaved woman would also in turn be enslaved. So it's exceptionally powerful to see the ways in which women are able to 
advocate for themselves and push for their freedom and the freedom of their children, which I think is, you know, the, the truest kind of fulfillment of the revolution's promises. If we can see it, it's, it's black women doing that. Right. And of course it's still very limited. The number of enslaved women and children that were freed in this period is still relatively minimal. And there's always the danger of being captured and re-enslaved, right? That freedom is still very tenuous. Um, but still, I think it was really important to see the ways in which Black women were navigating this, this patriarchal legal system. Um, even if, again, we don't hear their voices explicitly, we can kind of read between the lines to see their activism. Yeah. And I, I you know, I was thinking of own a judge mm-hmm. uh, and the fact uh, that she's never caught, right? But and and how she's able to kind of not use the legal system per se, mm-hmm. but to understand which way the wind blows in order to not be caught. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, initially, and maybe just, you know, from being an undergraduate and starting to read about women's history, just being frustrated that, you know, women aren't coming together to blow up the whole system uh, while they're kind of deeply mired in this these various forms of inequality. But it just, you know, wasn't possible. The patriarchal structure was so all-consuming that all they could really do is chip away at it at an individual level. And then, you know, once they kind of realize like, oh, we are citizens with rights too. And they start to assert that that's the kind of important step before they start to collectivize, which is what we start to see in the antebellum period with abolition and uh, the women's suffrage movement initially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I teach a 100 level women's history mm-hmm. course and the course begins in 17th century. And so for the first lecture of the semester, I always start with the question, you know, are women property? And I think that legal context is so important for students to understand where we're going to go in the class and to understand from beginning to end this whole arc of the position of women in history. So your book forces, you know, the class to realize that we can talk about women with agency, you know, Mm -hmm. not just that, that, you know, I think it's very easy for students, particularly at the beginning to kind of fall into this, oh, poor women, you know, oh, poor women, they don't get to do that. Oh, poor women, they don't. I go, no, no. Yeah. (laughs) Much more complex, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. I think, um, like I said, from the surface and from a 21st century perspective, it can be very frustrating, exhausting, and uh, debilitating in some ways to continue to read these sources and write about them. But again, we have to adjust our expectations to what was possible in the 18th century. And I think if we take what was possible for women, whether they were kind of wealthier white women or impoverished women or black women, right? The spectrum of possibility, you know, when we shrink it, it makes it that much more impressive to see what they were able to do with their lives, despite these many restrictions. And in some cases, they took those restrictions and exploited them to work to their advantage and to undermine those restrictions at the same time. Um, what it, what they didn't do was, again, tear down that system, right? That's still in process working on it, right? But I think the fact that they were able to work with what they had in such a significant way and in such significant numbers is really important, right? Lessons that we can learn that, you know, especially when we're frustrated by 
kind of regressions in women's rights, especially that it isn't a switch we can flip. It requires a lot of work, uh, regular work, persistent work. Um, and yeah, I think we just have to think about power and agency in a more expansive way, right? It's not just voting. It's not just being a member of Congress and passing laws. There's a lot of smaller localized individualized work that can be done to reclaim agency over your own life or over the lives of people in your community. That's why I really love that you have patriarchy in your title because, you know, the, the, the overall structure mm-hmm. is so difficult to, to fight against and yeah. to, and to make any progress against. And, you know, the, uh, not just one thing, you know, not just one organization or effort or, or legal change, you know, it's the system itself that sure. is so deeply entrenched in society and culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, so, you know, I was fantasizing about you and Jill Lepore on a panel mm-hmm. <laughs> because I really loved Lepore's book on Jane Franklin, the book mm-hmm. of ages. And um, that would just be dynamite to hear you guys talking about the you know, her very personal, I think, description of what Jane Franklin's life was like, Mm -hmm. um, and the economic and and marital upheaval that she lived through for so many, you know, years while her husband, while her brother, Mm -hmm. Benjamin Franklin was soaring in becoming one of the most well-known men in the world, probably. Yes. Um, yeah. so I just, I always, uh, I had to say that because I yeah. just thought that would be really fun. Well, that it would be cool because I think, uh, I was, must've been when I was getting my master's, she came to speak uh, and she was speaking about that project before it was published. So that would be a very fun full circle moment. Um, but uh-huh. yeah, I think combining the two projects, you can really see how, womanhood in the 18th century is so much about survival really and navigating all these various systems of oppression um you know again very very depressing but there are also Mm -hmm. ways in which we see women carving out a measure of agency for themselves at the same time yeah and I don't remember if Jane Franklin ever made any kind of legal petition or if that was in the record at all but I just remember her like getting getting uh in a hard place financially mm-hmm. and uh asking for the soap recipe so she right. could make and sell some soap yeah. yeah um you know and uh just the you know how sad that was mm-hmm. uh, i thought you know uh, considering the the family's prominence yeah you know, absolutely absolutely you know so you know in your conclusion you talk about phyllis schlafly who seems to be everywhere yeah. these days <laughs> yeah <laughs> seems uh-huh. like she's popping up in so many sources and on yeah. hulu and you know she's yeah everywhere. that's right mm-hmm. um and i have to say i did think of her immediately when i read the beginning and her anti-feminist movement in the 1970s really leans on some of these ideas of patriarchal protection mm-hmm. outweighing the restrictions um, on freedom. Mm -hmm. So I I was wondering if you kind of, I know you kind of make that connection in the conclusion, but I thought Mm -hmm. maybe you could comment on it for a second. Yeah. I think it's, it's part of a much longer history of women, not exactly repeating, but kind of paralleling what 
the the women in my book do, right? And I I actually had an op-ed in the Washington Post oh back in March for Women's History Month, I think it was, talking about Nikki Haley and how Nikki Haley's campaign kind of did this, where her opening video, um, when I was listening to a podcast uh, about her, about, you know, politics, whatever, her entry into the race, she says at the very end something about standing up to bullies and how effective she will be because she wears high heels and when you kick back, it hurts more or something like that. So I was like, oh, wow, you're really kind of being pugnacious, but using this very potent symbol of femininity, right? Your stilettos, you're going to poke Kim Jong-il with your high heels, right? It, it, it's just like, wow, this really is everywhere, right? Um, but yeah, you see this really long history and I think it's... Um, very much individualized in the way that women present this, right? That you have women like Phyllis Schlafly who are, again, parroting these expectations of feminine dependence and patriarchal authority and buying into it and saying it's a good thing, right? Um, but all the while, she is making money off of this and having a career. She's a lawyer. She's a prominent political activist. She's traveling the country, right? So she is in practice, undermining the very argument that she is making. Now, maybe she would justify it by saying that, you know, spreading the word is, you know, a valuable component of whatever, but, you know, it's, it's contradictory at best for her to be espousing these ideas while she's doing the exact opposite with her behavior. Um, but there are, there are women who kind of use that, uh, or, or buy into and perform these expectations of dependent womanhood, to work in their individual situations, to give them power individually, women who choose race, for example, over um, female solidarity, right? Plantation mistresses, for example, women who choose class over gendered solidarity. So I think implicit in, in the conclusion is a kind of critique of a lack of intersectional approaches in activism that when women and other marginalized people are really focused on their own individual situations, not seeing it in a larger context of systemic oppression, right, of all the marginalized people that are differently uh, oppressed, for sure, but oppressed nonetheless, right, that when these people collectivize and push together and advocate for each other and allyship, it's much more effective, right? I'm thinking of even like the visibility of the Women's March in, in January 2017, where you had literally millions of people across the country coming together in a form of resistance and solidarity under the guise of feminism, right? Or at least that was the larger umbrella that brought people together. So there's kind of countless examples throughout history of women who you know, some of them believe what they're spewing. Some of them just exploit these expectations to work to their immediate advantage and in the long run are hurting activists and marginalized people in doing so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So was there any particular petition that was like your most favorite or your most, in you thought was the most interesting? Yeah, there are, there are a lot. Um, I sometimes joke that I'm was like the 18th century version of Jerry Springer, where I'm getting like a lot of these people's personal, like you said, dirty laundry coming out. Um, and it's interesting too, because they're sharing this information with their legislators and, and judges in their communities. Um, so there were a few, I think a lot of my favorites were, um, the ones that demonstrated the the networks that women were able to build despite patriarchal oppression, right? That they kind of give up on relying on men and instead rely on their mothers, their sisters, their friends, and their neighborhoods. Um, there's one example that I, I find really interesting where 
you know, there's plenty of evidence of women sharing effective strategies, especially for language in their petitions, right? They petition simultaneously, they petition one right after another and repeat the language. Um, but there are two women in Boston who were petitioning for divorce uh, relatively closely together. And uh, this first woman, I believe her name was Sarah Rust. She petitioned for divorce, was not successful. Her friend, Helena Baird, petitions for divorce and is successful. So Sarah Rust comes back, petitions the uh, the courts again, is like, hey, remember me? Uh, here's my situation. And I know that my friend Helena was given a divorce and her situation is not as bad as mine. So you should reconsider. And then they do grant her the divorce in the end. So it's effective for her to say, my friend told me what's going on here. My situation is worse. So like you were wrong, fix the situation now, uh, which is pretty, pretty powerful. Um, there are some, I mean, most of the depositions in divorce cases are really depressing because they show uh, evidence of, of domestic abuse, but some of them are fairly comical when they're talking about uh, adultery, I guess as comical as adultery can be. Um, there are these two older women who are next door neighbors with this couple, the woman who is um, suing for divorce. And, you know, the walls between the houses are paper thin and the women are like, oh, what's going on over there? It sounds like someone's being hurt. So they walk out of their house and kind of bust through the door of their neighbors thinking someone's you know being harmed. And they see this man and a woman who is not his wife in the middle of having sex. And they just like, they freak out and they're like, oh my God, what are you doing? That's not your wife. And he makes some horribly offensive comments. And then they go and they, you know, provide witness testimony in this case is very colorful. Um, so there were, there are some situations like that, that were also, uh, fairly entertaining. I think amid all the depressing sources, it's always nice to have one that's like makes me chuckle out loud, I guess. Oh, so. sure. Yeah. I mean, it had to be, you know, it's sort of like when you do this kind of research too, and you're reading correspondence and things, you know, I just love reading people's mail. I guess mm -hmm. there's just like a nosy part of my personality Yes. that uh, loves to do that. And so there's, there's part of that when you're like looking behind the curtain, that's a lot of fun. Sure. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I really enjoyed the book and I really hope that people consider it for their classes yeah. and for their background. I mean, I really adds fantastic information for your preparation for that lecture mm -hmm. on the American revolution, where you really want to add that, that element of what, was going on for women of the different classes and, mm -hmm. and races and regions. I think it's it's really fantastic. So I want to thank Dr. Jacqueline Beatty for joining me today on the show and for discussing her new book, Independence, Women and the Patriarchal State in Revolutionary America, published by New York University Press. Until next time on new books in women's history, this is Jane Semeca. Keep reading. <laughs>